Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Can we really believe that God is going to eternally punish people for finite sins, sins that they commit here in this short period of time on earth? How is that just? How is that fair? How is that right? That's one of the issues we're going to dive into today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek here on the American Family Radio Network. Blessings this Thanksgiving weekend. I'm going to go right to the questions you've sent. And one of the questions you've sent comes from Daniel. And if you want to send a question, go to or just send an email to hello at crossexamine.org. Greetings, Dr. Turk. I hope you're doing great. When I think about the subject of eternal reward versus eternal torment, it comes to my mind the idea of incompatibility between the action and the consequence. Whatever we do here in this earthly life will have finite repercussions, no matter how great the impact is, be it for good or bad. It doesn't make sense to condemn someone for eternal torment because of that. A thief, even though he's objectively wrong in stealing, will affect no one, say, 20 generations from now. No sane person would punish their children for skipping class by cutting off their legs because the punishment is not proportional to the act. How fair or how is it fair for everyone to suffer eternally then? Why do we only get one chance at redemption? Okay, that comes from Daniel, who writes in. Well, first of all, He's assuming, Daniel, you're assuming here a moral standard whenever you bring up an objection like this. And I've noticed that about 70% of the objections that I get on college campuses, or camp I, uh, have to do with morality. This is a moral objection to say that if the Christian view is true about eternal torment, about eternal punishment, that this is somehow immoral. Well, by what moral standard are we judging this to be immoral? That would be my first question. I mean, if there is no God, then this couldn't be immoral because there's no such thing as morality or immorality. Everything's just a matter of opinion. If God does exist, are you saying there, therefore then he is evil? Well, evil can't exist unless good exists, and good can't exist unless God exists, because evil is a lack in a good thing. It's a parasite in a good thing. The ultimate power in the universe can't be evil. The ultimate power in the universe has to be good, because evil alone doesn't exist. It can only exist as a privation or a lack in a good thing. As I've said before here, evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you got a better body. What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? You've got nothing. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you have a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of the rust? Nothing. A totally moth-eaten garment is a hanger. In other words, it doesn't exist. Evil doesn't exist on its own. It can only exist as a lack in a good thing. So the ultimate, ultimate reality can't be evil because evil by itself doesn't exist. It can only exist as a lack in a good thing. So ultimate reality must be good. Now, what you could say is God does exist, 
but he's not the Christian God. That's certainly a possible position to have. You could say God does exist, and he is the standard of morality, and that standard of morality doesn't comport with the biblical view of hell, so therefore the God of the Bible is not the true God. There's another God out there. You could make that case. I don't think it's a good case. Why? Because ultimately, if Jesus rose from the dead, then the God of the Bible is the true God. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection. He's proven that he is God. And whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. So the whole key to this is the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus taught quite a bit on this subject of hell. So let's get into it a little bit then. What can we say, therefore, oh, by the way, let me say one other thing about evil can't be the ultimate source of reality. Even Satan is metaphysically good, meaning what? He has mind, emotion, and will. He can think, he can, he can feel, he can make decisions. Mind, emotion, and will are good things. Even to do evil, you have to use good things to do them. So ultimate reality still is good. This is why, as C.S. Lewis put it, that Christianity has always deemed Satan to be a fallen angel. He's not the equal power of God. He has to borrow or steal God's power that God has granted him as a free creature to use those good powers in order to do evil. So evil is ultimately a privation and good. It can't be the standard of all things. Now, is it overkill for God to essentially, as people say, uh, send people to everlasting punishment? And does God do that? Does he send people to everlasting punishment? Well, let's talk about what Jesus talks or says about hell. In Matthew 10, he says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be of the afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. A little bit later in Matthew, in, verse, or in chapter 18, he says, If your hand or your foot, and he's using hyperbole here, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And it's better for you to enter a life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus is teaching that hell is someplace you do not want to go. And by the way, if you were just annihilated, why would that be any big deal? There are people out there, theologians, even respected theologians. John Stott, who died maybe 10 years or so ago, was a respected theologian who believed that hell was real, but it was temporary or that people were ultimately annihilated. Now, is it possible that hell is not eternal, uh, but it, it, it does, there is a period of punishment and then you're annihilated? Well, it's possible philosophically. It does not appear to be a possible scripturally because Jesus himself in Matthew 25 talks about eternal life and eternal punishment in basically the same verse. I think it's verse 46. Well, if eternal life means you're gonna have a, a period of bliss and then be annihilated, then, okay, you could say you're going to have a period of punishment and then be annihilated. But if both words, eternal, mean forever, then if you're going to say that 
hell is temporary. You have to say that heaven is temporary too. But we'll get to the apparent unfairness of this here in a minute. Jesus is basically saying that we have to be aware of this issue of hell, and it's certainly a place you do not want to go. Because, and in fact, the Apostle Paul, this is this is the last chapter of his, the last book he wrote, 2 Timothy, Timothy. He says this, chapter 4, In the presence of God and of Christ, Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, he says, I give you this charge to Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. We have to be very careful with our doctrine. We do not want to in any way mislead people as to the truth. And Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. So, is it fair that God will judge people eternally, that there will be eternal punishment? Now, we could look at certain scriptures. We don't have time to get into it all here. But we're going to deal with that right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. I want to mention that this Sunday, November 28th, I'll be at Freedom House Church right here in Charlotte on the South End. My friend uh, Troy Maxwell, the pastor there, I hope to see you for the morning services. Then I'll be in Port St. Lucie, Florida, Calvary Chapel for Sunday, December 5th, and also the Saturday night service. Uh, And then an afternoon, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist session. Go to their website there. Go to our website, crossexamine.org, and click on events. Back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Happy and blessed Thanksgiving weekend to you. By the way, do you know that Christianity only makes sense, at least eternal sense, if there is an eternity? And what are we thankful for? What are we saved from if there is no hell? Are we just saved from taking a dirt nap for all eternity? That's not actually a punishment to take a dirt nap for all eternity if you've done something evil here on earth that you haven't paid for. I mean, obviously, yeah, we understand that capital punishment is something that we met out. But at at the end of the day, there are people that they do evil and they never pay for it. They, They get away with it. There are people that their crimes are never actually discovered and there's never a punishment given here on earth. It would seem to be, if God exists, that that would be unjust to not give them at least some punishment in the afterlife if they don't get punishment here. Justice is never done if there is no hell. And, well, let's get into it as we go. I get ahead of myself here. Let me let me point out what hell is not. Hell is not a torture chamber. I hear atheists saying that all. God's going to torture you forever. Hell is not described as torture. Torment is how it's described, and that's more internally uh, inflicted, not externally inflicted. Torment is the idea that if you had made different choices, things would have turned out better, but torment 
is based on regret, not repentance. You may do something, I'll give you a trivial example. You may be driving your car and, and you know there's a speed trap and you're going too fast and you blow right through it and the cop catches you and you're like, man, I knew that was a speed trap. Why didn't I slow down? He gives you a ticket and you regret the fact that you got the ticket, but you're not really repentant because you just speed away after that. Ah, maybe for the first couple of days you don't, but then you're back to your old habits. You're just blowing, you're blowing way past the speed limit. And you haven't repented, you just regretted the fact that you didn't avoid the punishment. Well, that's like hell. You regret it, but you you don't wanna repent. C.S. Lewis famously said, the doors of, of hell are locked on the inside. You're not, trying, you're not trying to get out of hell. You're just sad you're there, but you don't want to make the choice to get out because you don't want the alternative. In fact, this is what happens in Luke 16. The rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man is in agony, he says, in this fire. And yet he's not saying I shouldn't be here. And he hasn't changed his attitude. You can go to Luke 16 to read this. I don't have time to get into it now. I'm trying to cover a lot in a short period of time. Anyway, he basically is treating Lazarus, who's in Abraham's bosom, the holding place before the ultimate destination. He's in paradise. Hey, Tell Lazarus to come down and cool my tongue with some water because I'm in agony in this fire. And he's he doesn't say I shouldn't be here. He's still treating Lazarus like Lazarus is his servant. He was the poor man, Lazarus was in this life. So he hasn't repented. He's just regretting where he is. So it's not a torture ta- chamber. It's not run by Satan. Satan doesn't have a pitchfork ordering people in hell around. No, Satan is ultimately going to be punished there. It's not where God sends you against your free choice. Hell is the place that you decide to go to because you don't want the alternative. It's not where you're going to see your buddies. There's no buddiness in hell. I'd rather be in hell with my buddies than in heaven with God. No, no, there's no buddiness. It's not a place of repentance. It's a place of regret, but not repentance. It's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth gives the impression that you're, you're still against God. You're not repentant. You may be regretful, but you're not repentant. It's not a place of equal punishment either. You go to Luke 12 to talk where Jesus talks about the fact that people will be beaten with few blows or many blows based on their knowledge. It would be unfair of God to punish an average garden variety sinner at the same level of torment as, say, Hitler or Mao or Stalin or a rapist or a sex trafficker because it wouldn't be just if God punished them all equally. And it's not, hell is not describable with a single image, reference, or analogy. I mean, there seems to be uh, opposed analogies. On one, hand, on one hand, you have outer darkness. On the other hand, you have fire. Well, how do you have fire if the place is dark? These are references or metaphors to communicate destruction. They don't appear to be literal. If they were literal, they would seem to be contradictory. So it's destruction. What hell is, it's being lost in outer darkness. And these are metaphors. It's, it's, it's a furnace of fire. It's a perpetually burning dump. It's a bottomless pit. These are all metaphors the Bible uses to try and communicate. Probably the most accurate description of it is its separation from God. 
That's 2 Thessalonians 1.9. You're separated from the ultimate source of beauty. It's a place of anguish and regret. regret. It's where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of torment, not torture. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me go back to this separation of God idea that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I was at the University of Michigan. This is probably eight or nine years ago. I was debating an atheist by the name of uh, Eddie Tabash. And he was a Beverly Hills attorney. He's debated many Christians. And at one point in the debate, Eddie asked me a question. He said, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived a life full of pain and suffering. Excuse me. Toward the end of her life, someone offered her the gospel, but she rejected it, and then she died. Is she in hell right now? That's a pretty tough question to ask in front of a secular audience. So I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is now. I don't know if she had a deathbed conversion or not. But if she didn't accept Christ before she died, then God is too loving to force her into heaven against her will. Why did I say that? Because the assumption is everybody wants to go to heaven. That is not true. Who's in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. There have been people running from Jesus their entire lives. What's he going to do in the afterlife? Go, hey, where are you going? You're with me now. Get over here. No, that wouldn't be loving. You say, what's all this business about hell then? Well, I used an analogy with the University of Michigan audience. And I asked this. I asked of the ladies. I said, ladies. Have you ever had a man pursue you whom you did not want to date? And at that point, there was somebody in the back of the room who yelled, Yes! (laughs) I said, Oh, this guy's probably sitting next to you right now, isn't he? When I said that, of course, all the ladies giggled and all the men looked at their shoes. (laughs) Like, "Is, is this woman looking at me right now? Well, I said, Ladies, Suppose this man keeps asking you out, keeps asking you out. You know, you're not interested in dating this guy, but he keeps asking you out. And you finally say to him, look, I like you, but only as a friend. Yes, that's right. Well, ladies, why don't you just stick the knife in and turn it? Every man has heard the dreaded friend rejection. Gentlemen, if you ever hear the dreaded friend rejection, Move on. She's not interested. In fact, I have some shocking news for you. She doesn't even like you as a friend. Ladies, you know what I'm saying is true. Because if you really did like him as a friend, you would be interested. But you're not. Okay? She's just trying to be nice, guys. But she's just trying to get rid of you. All right? Because she she wants to let you down easy. So just move on. But suppose... This guy, that you're not deterred, or this guy's not deterred by that. He, he keeps asking you out, he keeps asking you out, and he finally says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Ladies, run, screaming from the building. Can he force you to love him? No, love by definition must be freely given. In fact, if he truly did love you, ladies, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's what God does for us. He sends us cards, letters, and flowers. He sends us creation. He sends us conscience. He sends us Christ. 
He sends us the Bible. If you're in a far off land, he may send you a dream or a vision like uh, he does to many Muslims today. But if God does all that and you keep saying, no, 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 I don't want you. I want to go my own way. God will leave you alone. You will be separated from God for all eternity. You say, well, what could be so bad about that? Well, let's look at it this way. Everybody, whether they're a Christian or not, gets some of the common grace of God. His reign falls on the just and the unjust. Everybody, regardless of what you believe about God, experiences some of the grace of God. Everybody experiences relationships, love, hope for a future, this kind of thing. But I want you to imagine a place where there are no relationships, where there is no love, where there is no hope, where there is no future. There's just stone cold, narcissistic self-absorption. That is Washington. <laughs> well, it is, but no, that is hell. You're cut off from the ultimate source of peace, of goodness, of beauty. You're cut off by your own choice. You don't want to be part of that. You want to go your own way. As C.S. Lewis famously said, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. God doesn't send you anywhere. You decide where you're going to go because you're rejecting the ultimate source of goodness, the ultimate source of peace, the ultimate source of beauty, the ultimate source of tranquility. You're rejecting all that because you want to do your own thing. You want to go your own way. And no, contrary to popular opinion, you don't, you don't go to hell just because you don't believe in Jesus. You go to hell because you've sinned. It would be like saying, uh, I died because I, I, I didn't go to the doctor. No, you die because you have a disease. You don't die because you didn't go to the doctor. Oh, now maybe you could have prevented dying by going to the doctor, just like you could prevent eternal death by going to the great physician, Jesus. But the reason you go to hell or we all are on our way to hell is because we've sinned. And since God is infinitely just and infinitely loving, he provides a way out. He's infinitely just, so he can't allow sin to go unpunished. He has to punish sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be infinitely just. On the other hand, he doesn't want to punish us because he's infinitely loving. So what does he do? He punishes himself in place. He punishes himself in our place. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He remains just because he punishes sin, but he's the justifier of we sinners, because he doesn't punish us, he punishes himself in our place. That's, that's the way he can remain just and be the justifier. That's why Jesus is the only way. It's not an arbitrary claim. It's grounded in the nature of reality. He's infinitely just and infinitely loving. So there's only one way to solve that. He does it himself. I'm Frank Turek, back in two. Welcome back to I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about this issue of hell and how is it just? Well, look, if there is no hell, then Hitler, Stalin, murderers, rapists, child sex traffickers, pedophiles, other people who are never punished here on earth, get away with it. There's no justice. If there is no hell, God is not just and there is no ultimate justice. 
If there is no hell, God is not worthy of worship because he allows evil to go unpunished. I know there are people out there who think God just accepts everything. Any parent who accepts everything is not loving. Every, any parent who doesn't correct evil in their child doesn't love the child. Any parent who doesn't punish the child to try and bring him along to become a better person is not a loving parent. If God doesn't punish people, he's not loving. If there is no hell, Jesus is not God. He was wrong. So why believe what he said about heaven or anything else? Because he talked a lot about hell. We've already covered it earlier in the program. If there is no hell, then Jesus died a brutal death for nothing. On our TV program, and by the way, we do have a TV program every Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the NRB TV network. It's also on Roku. Just look for NRB if you have Roku or go to our website, crossexamine.org or our app because we stream the show live at that time, 9 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday nights. You can also get the TV programs on DVD or MP4 by going to our website, click and store. Anyway, we have we have a two-program uh, a show on hell, this issue of hell, where we go through this in a lot more detail. Uh, so if you want to go further, please do that. We're going through Galatians right now. Actually, we're recording the shows for Galatians. And Paul says right in the book of Galatians, he said, if righteousness could be attained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. And if there is no hell, Christ died for nothing. So, hell seems necessary. But why does it have to be eternal? I mean, come on. I mean, these are temporal sins. So, why does it have to be eternal? Well, let's take a look at that. Because I think that's a great question. That why does hell have to be eternal? Couldn't God just punish people and then allow them to go their own way after that? In fact, isn't it wrong to have what seems to be infinite punishment for finite sins? Well, let's think about punishment in general. Does the length of the punishment always have to be equal to the length of the crime? Think about that. Well, of course not. It might take you two seconds to pull a trigger and kill somebody, but your punishment is not just two seconds. The punishment goes on a lot further. The severity of the crime dictates the, dictates the easy for me to say, the severity of the crime dictates the length of the punishment, not the time it took to commit the crime. Secondly, Crimes against the eternal supreme being are the most severe and may demand eternal punishment. And then thirdly, what is often forgotten when people make this objection is that sin and rebellion doesn't end in hell. Sin continues in hell, so the punishment continues. You don't become perfect when you get to hell and no longer sin. You're still a conscious being that continues to gnash your teeth against God. You're continually in sin. So the punishment continues. Now, as I said earlier, is it philosophically possible that there could be a temporal period of punishment and then annihilation? That's philosophically possible, but it doesn't appear to comport with the scriptures. And I know people have tried to make the case, and it's there are scriptures that you, you might think, well, maybe it does mean annihilation. Like even the, even the, uh, the great passage, for God so loved the world, that whoever believes in him 
may get eternal life and not perish, right? Did John 3, 16? Perish seems, well, does that, does that, is that annihilationism? You could take it that way. But I think when you put all the scriptures together, and particularly Jesus equating eternal heaven and eternal hell, using the same word there, seems to me that people stay in existence. And it would also be an attack on God's image for him to annihilate people who are made in his image. I mean, what would you think of a, of a, a parent whose child said to him, I never want to see you again. Leave me alone. So the parent shot him. That, that would be annihilation, right? If the parent respected the kid's wishes, I never want to see you again. So he separates himself or herself from the child. That's what God does. The problem is when he separates himself from us, when God separates himself from us because that's what we want, the result is not a pleasant place because God is the source of all peace, of all goodness, of all beauty, of all tranquility, of all love. And in fact, uh, C.S. Lewis has written so profoundly on this. He says this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell, and let me say this, I with Lewis emotionally don't want hell to exist, at least not the eternal hell, emotionally. But that's because I'm a finite being and I don't understand. Um, my emotions don't always lead me to the truth. Hell is going to be a place of perfect justice because God is perfect. And just because I don't understand what perfect justice is doesn't mean that I should be opposed to it. I shouldn't be opposed to perfect justice. I should be for perfect justice. And God, by definition, is perfect justice. Nobody in the afterlife is going to get a raw deal. Nobody's going to say, this is unfair. I shouldn't, this shouldn't happen to me. Well, not the God of all justice do what's right, Genesis 8.25. Yes, God is just. But emotionally, I'm with Lewis when he said, gee, I wish this didn't exist. But then intellectually, I go, you know, it has to exist for justice to exist. And for God to ultimately be love, I know this is going to sound counterintuitive, but hell proves that God is just and man is free. Man is free. Yeah, we have the freedom to either be with God or be separated from God. And here's what Lewis said about it. In the long run, the answer to those who all object to the doctrine of hell is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgive them. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that that is what he does, unquote, C.S. Lewis. I think he has that. Look, at the end of the day, you know what hell is? It's a quarantine of evil. At the end of the day, there's, there's only two possibilities. You're either going to be with God in the afterlife or you're going to be separated from God in the afterlife. If you're with God in the afterlife, that's heaven. If you're separated from God in the afterlife, that's hell. So God is granting you what you want if you don't accept his forgiveness. You don't want him. And there are many atheists who have admitted this. Christopher Hitchens, who, as you know, I had debates with a number of years ago, basically said before he died, look, if anyone says that, uh, you know, Hitchens converted on his deathbed, don't believe it. I never will. He doesn't, he didn't want God to exist. He wasn't an atheist. He defined himself as an anti-theist. 
It wasn't just that he didn't believe in God. He didn't want God to exist. Thomas Nagel, a great philosopher from NYU, says, it's not just that I don't believe in God. He said, I don't want God to exist. I don't want the world to be that way. In fact, he said, one of the most, and I'm paraphrasing, one of the most upsetting things for me is the fact that some of my friends are very intelligent people and they're believers. Because he he knows there's some evidence behind this, but he doesn't want it to be true. So people, and by the way, this is why I ask people sometimes, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And many times the answer is no. They don't want it to be true. They want to do their own thing. Well, God will give them the ability to do their own thing, to be separated from him and those that love him forever. That's what hell is. It's a quarantine of evil. He doesn't take away their free will. He just quarantines it in a place where their free will can't hurt others. So, Hell is a place that we need to avoid and should want to avoid. Here's the passage, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's what Paul says. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and will be marveled at among all those who have believed. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 10. And by the way, there are people listening to me right now who have very developed senses of justice. In fact, some of you are so interested in justice that you even want to punish people who are not guilty. There are people out there talking about, say, reparations when it comes to slavery. You believe in justice so much that you even want to punish people who didn't do anything. You want to punish them for your ancestors. Well, what about the people who really did do the evil of slavery, say, and they just died? Should they experience any punishment? Here you are wanting to punish people who didn't do anything wrong. You want to punish them. And you're going to say, well, if there's no hell, they didn't get punished either. Nobody paid for that. There is no punishment. Look, if there is no God, there is no justice. So there's nothing even wrong with slavery if God doesn't exist. It's just your opinion. It's just your preference. But if God exists and there is a purpose to life and people are valuable, then it's wrong to enslave them. Oh, and there are so many people. They just took down a statue in New York, in the New York City uh, City Hall of Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves. Yeah, there's probably a portrait somewhere in there of Margaret Sanger, though, right? the lady who uh, really started Planned Parenthood. And there are many people on that city council, probably all of them are so-called pro-choice. Yeah, they believe that murdering babies in the womb is a right. Now, they they don't think it's murder, but it is. You can look at the evidence. There's a human being in there. There's not a squirrel or a blob of tissue. There's a human being in there. And yet you are so upset with Thomas Jefferson What's going to happen 200 years from now, hopefully, when people look back, if the world is still here then, they look back at you and go, I can't believe your portrait is in the New York City City Hall. We need to take that thing out because you believe that killing people in the womb was not only 
Alright, it was a good thing. Yeah, don't tell me you would have been against slavery 150 years ago. You probably would have been for it. And maybe I would have been for it too. I would have had cultural blinders on as well. And probably you would too. So let's be honest. None of us are perfect. That's why we all need a savior. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go anywhere. Back in two. We've been talking about this issue of hell and how can it be eternal today here on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist radio show and podcast. There's so much more that could be said, but we don't have time to deal with it all today. I got to get to a couple of other issues. If you want to go further, get our resource on our website. Just click on store at crossexamine.org. It'll take you over to impactapologetics.com and you can get hell the Truth About Eternity, we have it in DVD and MP4 and MP3. If you just want to listen to it, it's about two hours long, goes into a lot more detail. Check that out there. You can also go to the Got Questions website or app. Got Questions has a lot of good articles on many topics on theology, philosophy, apologetics. Check them out as well if you want more on that. And if you really want to learn about not just this issue, but so many others, you might want to check out SES, Southern Evangelical Seminary, SES.edu. That's where I went to get my doctorate in apologetics, SES.edu, and you can go there as well. In fact, if you go to SES.edu forward slash Frank, you'll get, I think, 10% off your first class, maybe more than that. I don't know, but just check it out. It's a great place to go to school, and it's all virtual. It's all online. You can be anywhere in the world and take classes in that regard. Here's a fun story I got. I got this email from, it came from a Michelle Wagonar, and she says, Hi, Dr. Frank. My name is Michelle. I am a Dutch illustrator and listener of your podcast. A few months ago, you talked with John Stone Street about the most important verse in the Bible, other than the gospel, of course, and today it's Proverbs 4, 23, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. That's the most important verse in my view, other than the gospel itself right now. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. And here's what Michelle says. It struck me how the world promotes the quote, following your heart and how the Bible actually opposes that. As a 23-year-old, my generation is almost submerged by this quote. I grew up being told that following your heart is the most important thing in life. So it really hit me when I realized that following your feelings is an unreliable guide and still so much people, so many people, especially in my generation, live by it. I thought you put that thought so well in your podcast, I had to make an illustration about it. So I hereby would like you, or I, so I, so I hereby would like to show you the work just to let you know how you inspired others from around the globe. Thanks for what you do. Keep up the good work. Uh, God bless. And she sent us this, this fun illustration, which we put on most of our social media accounts. In fact, I think all of our social media accounts, check out our Instagram, check out uh, the, the, uh, the website. Well, certainly the uh, Facebook pages, or is it the meta page now? Whatever. Facebook pages, crossexamine.org, and of uh, Dr. Frank Turek, and it's probably also on Twitter and other places. It's from Michelle Wagner, this fun illustration she did 
about guarding your heart, not following your heart. In fact, if you follow your heart, you're going to be dead in short order. You can't follow your heart everywhere. Your heart is deceitful and wicked, said Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's easy to be bad. It's hard to be good. It's easy to get diverted off the true path for an unrighteous path. It's easy to pull away from going in the right direction and going in the wrong direction because your heart can pull you in so many different ways. If you follow your emotions without a ch without checking them by truth and morality, you're going to either find yourself sick, dead, or both pretty quickly. In fact, we're all on the road to hell because we follow our hearts toward evil. So that's why we need to guard our hearts, not follow our hearts, guard our hearts because everything you do flows from it. So thanks so much to Michelle for sending that to us. And if you check out our, our social media sites, you'll see her illustration. I also have a, a, a question from Laura in Texarkana, Texas. She's using the I Don't Have Enough Faith to be an Atheist curriculum in a homeschool co-op. And she had some uh, men, young men in her class, ask the question about uh, what I said in the curriculum. And I'm abbreviating what she wrote here. It's too long to get through it all. But she says, Dr. Turk mentions... The fact that historical fiction was a not a known genre during ancient times and used that as an argument to uphold the point that the authors would not have made this up and use so many accurate historical facts mixed in with fiction. How is that so? And they thought they've read other historical fiction novels that have all these details in it. Well, just go to the Encyclopedia Britannica of all places. They will say that the historical novel really did not begin until modern times. The first historical novel we know about was Sir Walter Scott's Waverley uh, from 1814. So just about 200 years ago did this genre of historical novel where you have a fictional story but told in a setting where you might use real people or real places. That really hasn't, it didn't exist in ancient times. But that's a parenthetical point anyway with regard to historical the historical reliability of the New Testament. You can throw out that comment about the historical novel and the truth about it, and still the, the New Testament stands as an historical document. And as you know, we go through several lines of evidence in the curriculum lore about this. There's early uh, testimony. In fact, the documents are written early, and the, the material written in the documents is earlier than when they were written down, especially the creed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. That creed comes from very early, within probably a months of the resurrection itself, even though it was written down by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, probably around 55 AD, the creed itself comes much earlier. And in fact, there are eyewitness details throughout the New Testament documents showing that eyewitnesses must have written it or people that knew eyewitnesses. Also, the fact that there's embarrassing stories in the text that these people wouldn't have invented. They wouldn't have invented that Peter was called Satan by Jesus. He's the leader. They wouldn't have invented that Peter denied Christ three times. He's their leader. They wouldn't have said they all ran away and hid for fear of the Jews Why the women were the ones that discovered the empty tomb. That's embarrassing to the men. It's also embarrassing if you're trying to get these, uh, these uh, uh, people in the first century to think your story's, story is true because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. If you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses, yet all four Gospels show the women are the first witnesses. 
which is telling us they really must have been because it didn't help their case, especially one of the witnesses being a formerly demon-possessed woman. How is that a reliable witness? They're not making this up. They even have embarrassing details about Jesus. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. So this is not a made-up story. In fact, there's there's two prostitutes in his bloodline, the Messiah's bloodline. This is the, the New Testament is the ultimate no-spin zone. Okay, they didn't make any of this up. Also, the fact that they died excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by simply saying it never happened. These were not people prone to believe that a man could claim to be God. They thought that was blasphemy. Why? Because these people were Jews that wrote the New Testament down. All the writers of the New Testament were Jews except Luke. Why would they invent a resurrected Jesus who claimed to be God? They didn't think a man could claim to be God, and they didn't think anyone would resurrect in the middle of time. They thought people would resurrect at the end of time, according to Daniel 12, but they didn't think somebody would resurrect in the middle of time. They had no motive to make this up. By saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead, they got kicked out of the synagogue, and then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. This is not a list of perks. They would have invented the Christian story for. Also, Laura asked the question, uh, the, the men had questions about the ossuary of Caiaphas, which was a burial box. Ossuaries are burial boxes the Jews used in the Second Temple period, all the way up to about 70 AD. After someone prominent had died, they would inter the remains, and then later, about a year later, go in and take the bones out of the grave and put them in a limestone burial box. Well, there have been a number of these burial boxes found in and around Jerusalem. One of them discovered in 1990, November of 1990, 21 years ago, 31 years ago, excuse me, uh, found that uh, it was a very ornate ossuary and it had the name Caiaphas engraved in it. Inside were the bones of a 60-year-old man, an adult woman, two teenagers and two younger children, maybe infants or babies, this was probably the Caiaphas of the New Testament. Uh, he's the only Caiaphas known in history. This is the guy that sentenced Jesus to die. Now, the, the Laura's uh, students said, well, there are other ossuaries that are disputed, that are not authentic. Why do we think the Caiaphas ossuary is authentic? Well, number one, it was ornate. Number two, Caiaphas is, it was inscribed in it, and it, he's the only Caiaphas known from that period of time. Number three, it was found where it probably was laid initially. It wasn't found on the antiquities market, as, say, the ossuary of James was found. In other words, the ossuary that, that, that says James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't found uh, when it was really discovered by uh, the authorities. It wasn't found where it was placed 2,000 years ago. It was found on the antiquities market. That could have been could have been created out of whole cloth. It could be a forgery. Now, they've done testing on that, and now most people think it is an authentic ossuary. But the Caiaphas ossuary certainly wasn't found on the antiquities market. It was found where it was buried initially. So there's no reason to think it wasn't the Caiaphas, especially since it was so ornate. And you can find this thing, by the way, in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. I've seen it myself. It's sitting on a glass table right there. It's amazing. 2,000 years old in pristine condition, uh, it's an amazing, amazing find, archaeological find. And so you can Google and discover more about the Caiaphas ossuary. I certainly think uh, 
Uh, there's more reasons to believe it's authentic than not. Unlike maybe some other ossuaries that could have been forgeries. This does not appear to be one of those. All right. So thank you for your question, Laura. Thanks for using the curriculum out there. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I do want to mention again that I'm going to be at Freedom House Church here in Charlotte this Sunday, November 28th on Saturday, December 4th and December 5th. I'll be at Calvary Chapel in Port St. Lucie, Florida. And then the week after that, I'll be out in Seattle, Washington, actually Federal Way, just south of Seattle. All the details on our website, crossexamine.org. Blessings this Thanksgiving weekend. We have a lot to be thankful for. You can't be happy unless you're thankful. So start being thankful. See you next week. God bless.